Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, Today, our friendship series, and my particular sermon today is after this vision target right here. Uh, We want to show every person in our church can name their pastor and their friends within the church. I want you to be able to say, I have a pastor who knows and loves me, and I have some of my closest relationships in the church. Now, let's call it like it is. Uh, Anonymity is actually very, very easy in a big church, isn't it? It's very, very easy to slide in on the weekends Get the Jesus feels from the songs, get your, you know, and then then go off back to your everyday life and never even know, meet a pastor, never even know or meet the people sitting around you. And some of you do that. That's some of your week in and week out. We want to make it as hard as possible for you to do that long at our church. But it's easy to do. It's easy. Now, because of that, a lot of people will blame the church. And they'll say, well, the reason why I don't have any relationships with the church is because the church didn't do a very good job of it. And certainly some churches do a bad job, but we're trying hard, okay? So you know what I think the bigger enemy is to close friendships, especially those in the church? I actually think it's our culture. Our culture. Our culture isolates us, which leads to loneliness. Our culture politicizes us, which leads to hate. Our culture addicts us to screens and technology, uh, which leads to withdrawal. And our culture individualizes us. And individualism always leads to selfishness. Those are the forces we're coming up against. Uh, Basically, uh, we live at the intersect of, let's see here. Let's go green. Mark Moore used green. I kind of liked it. Uh, we, lived at, we live at the intersect of four realities of busy. Because right? how in the world am I supposed to have any friends when as soon as I get off my 70-hour-a-week job, I'm just serving as a car service for my kids? We live at, uh, at the intersect of Mobility, because how in the world am I supposed to have any friends when when I get close to people, they switch jobs or they move to another house or they go to another city because they got a better job there, right? Did you know, I read the statistic years ago, but the average millennial will move five to seven times by their early 30s. Uh, We live at the uh, intersect of, of course, technology, because how in the world am I supposed to have any friends when it's much more fun on a Saturday night to go home and binge Netflix than it is to listen to you complain about your problems? Plus, we're, so, we're close already, right? Because we're friends on social media. We're close. We're cl- I, you know, we're friends on Instagram. So I, real, I know the real you, right? And you know the real me, right? Because we, we look at each other's highlight reels, right? Uh, and we live at the intersect of... Uh, of polarization. Because how in the world am I supposed to have any friends when there are so many good reasons to hate you? (laughs) We are being socialized at every level of society right now to become combatives with each other. 
the news, politics, sports, commerce, fill in the blank, schools, at all levels. It's yanking us and pulling us apart. I mean, how in the world am I supposed to be friends with her when she voted for Trump? She must be less than human. How in the world am I supposed to be friends with him when he was one of those mask zealots? He didn't just mask, he double masked while exercising outdoors. What an idiot! <laughs> now you laugh, you laugh, but I know several, not one, not two, several long-term relationships, friendships, family relationships that are decades old that fell apart over the last few years over things just like that. Don't you? Yeah. Now add on top of all the political things we get to hate about each other, the fact that, uh, that some people have Android phones, so the text is green, <laughs> hate them. Some people drink Diet Pepsi instead of coffee, hate them. And some people are wearing fanny packs again these days, very strange. And how in the world am I supposed to have any friends? This is where we live. Busyness, mobility, technology, polarization. Living at the intersect of these plus fanny packs. It's impossible to have friends anymore, right? So I wanna to suggest to you today that we have to fight back against that though. We have to fight it. We have to resist the, the, the cultural pull. We have to fight for the sake of friendship sake of friendship in our marriages, for the sake of friendship outside of our marriages, because we were designed by God for it. And I would suggest to you that you cannot flourish as a human being outside of at least a few deep relationships, vertically and horizontally. Now, Jesus himself affirms this. Some pretty strong words in John 15. This is in the upper room. Within 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. This is his last words to his disciples here. Last words are important words, right? Here are part of his last words. Um, he says to his disciples, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Wow. Jesus says, I wanna give you complete joy. In fact, I've said these things so that you can have complete joy. What things, Jesus? Well, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus says, joy is possible. You want complete joy? You want the joy that I have in your heart? Amen. <laughs> so there's a way to it. One, give yourself sacrificially to your friends. And two, obey my commands. Love God, love others. That's usually the station where the train stops anyways, right? Now, uh, today, I wanna turn a corner here. And for the rest of our time, uh, I wanna look at a biblical example, a legendary biblical example of a deep, intimate, committed friendship, to show you the sort of material that biblical friendships are made of. 
I want to look at the friendship of Jonathan and David. This is a famous Rembrandt, beautiful picture here. You can see Jonathan embracing his friend. Now, to set the historical stage for this, um, Jonathan and David walk on the pages of history about the 11th century B.C., Israel has just transitioned into a monarchy. They've transitioned from slaves in Egypt to wandering in the wilderness to this sort of tribal chiefdom that they had. We call them judges, right? But they were kind of like chiefs. Um, The very last chief or judge they had was a man named Samuel. And the people came to Samuel and they said, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations. And Samuel says, that's a bad idea. And God says, that's a bad idea. And they're like, we want a king anyways. And so they say, fine but you'll pay for it. And Samuel goes and he anoints the first king of the people of Israel, who? Saul, he anoints Saul. Now the good news is is that at first Saul was a promising choice because he came from humble roots. He came from the most insignificant tribe in Israel, Benjamin, the most insignificant family in the most insignificant tribe, the family of Kish. Everybody remembered that one time, On his coronation day, Saul was too scared to come out on stage. You read this story? Samuel's like, ladies and gentlemen, let me present to you your first king. I said, your first king. Where's Saul, right? And they go looking for Saul. They can't find him because he's like literally hiding out in the coat closet in the next room. Scared, frightened, humble roots. And God likes to work through humble roots because humble people tend to trust in him more, right? That's where Saul starts. But Saul is a mere mortal like any of us. And so the pride that comes with power begins to corrupt his soul over time. His humility turns to egotism. Over the course of his 42-year reign, day after day, like sand dissipating in an hourglass, he turns into a completely different person. Now, it's about halfway through Saul's reign when uh, God decides we're not going to continue Saul's dynasty. His, okay, like, this is not going to be Saul's son. We got we to move on from Saul here because of Saul's disobedience. So, uh, so Samuel goes by the prompting of the Lord to anoint a new king. Who's the second king? I, I'll wait. Somebody's going to tell me. David, thank you. David is the second king. David's the second king. And he also comes from humble roots and it's several years until he becomes a king. But again, David's not Saul's son. David is Jesse's son. Now Saul did have an heir apparent. Do you know who Saul's heir apparent was? His son who was supposed to take the throne? It was a man named Jonathan. And are you beginning to see where the conflict should come from already? Jonathan is the heir apparent. The throne is his. He's Saul's boy. David is the grassroots usurper. You've seen the movies. How do these relationships usually go? They're violent. They're brutal. The two do not get along. Except that in David and Jonathan's case, they did. They didn't just not fight each other. They loved each other. Against all the odds. Now, the two of them meet as great warriors, okay? They meet as warriors. First, uh, 1 Samuel 14 is where we meet Jonathan, Jonathan the warrior. Samuel is, or excuse me, uh, Jonathan is, uh, is walking with his, his armor bearer. 
And he and his armor bearer uh, see an outpost of Philistines up on the hill. Yeah, I see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, who are the Philistines? They are the constant pimple on the back of Israel. They hated the Philistines. They are constantly warring with the Philistines. So when Jonathan, the king's son, sees 20 Philistines, he hits his armor bearer and he says, hey, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to him. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle, whether he has many warriors or whether it is 20 on two. So they go. When Jonathan gets to the bottom of the hill and starts climbing toward the Philistines, the Philistines see him. They start smack talking him. They're like, come up here. We're gonna teach you a little lesson. But according to scripture, Jonathan doesn't say anything back to him, uh, back to them. Which by the way, learn this lesson real quick. If you're about to start a fight and you start smack talking somebody and they just stone cold silence you, that's the guy you worry about. Just saying. Because Jonathan goes to the top of the hill And 20 dead Philistines later, he wins a great victory against all the odds because of his faith in God. And it catalyzed the Israelite army that day. Jonathan, the warrior. Now jump forward a few chapters and we meet David, the warrior. David, the warrior. Okay, uh, at this point in David's story, uh, he's actually not a warrior. He's a shepherd. Um, And uh, his his father, Jesse, uh, grabs him and sends him to the front lines of the battle that day in order to take some snacks, some food to a few of his other older brothers who are serving in the army. He basically takes a charcuterie board to him. If you read, it's like some cheese and some bread. It's like char- Here, take a charcuterie board to your brothers. So when David gets to the front line of the battle that day, um, David meets a Philistine giant and warrior named Goliath. Anybody heard this story before? Yeah. For 40 days, this giant Goliath had been stomping in front of the Israelite army, calling them out, beckoning them to go one-on-one and settle the battle with him. I am Goliath, the Philistine champion. Hear me roar. Send me a man who will fight and we'll settle this. One-on-one, winner takes all, mano-y-mano. And for 40 days, the Israelite army fell back. And Saul had no idea what to do. They were all afraid. Well, all of them except for one, David. When he, the teenage shepherd boy, gets to the front lines that day, he says, apparently David was a smack talker, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And you know how the story goes from here. David goes to Saul. He says, I can take him. And Saul's like, Excuse me, right? And he tries to put his armor on it, but David's like, I don't need no armor. I don't need no sword. See my sling and my stone. I can take him. And in a moment of temporary insanity, Saul lets David go. And David marches out there onto the battlefield. His brothers are making burial preparations. And David says this. He says, you come to me, Goliath, with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, giant. And sure enough, slinging a stone later, the giant lay dead on the ground. Now, I want you to notice here, y'all, just like Jonathan, David drew courage from God. He risked his life for God. He won a victory for God. And just like Jonathan, it catalyzed the Israelite army that day to an even greater victory. 
This is where these two meet. Okay, so C.S. Lewis in his great um, essay on friendship said it like this once. He said, friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what, you two? And that's what happened here between David and Jonathan. Immediately they have a deep bond. They resonate with one another at a soul level, at a spiritual level, because they have courageous, death-defying faith in God. And I would suggest to you that those are the deepest relationships out of there. When you and your friend, when you and your spouse, when you and your girl or you and your bro also share a deep faith in God together. Here's the story of how they met. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Wow. Um, And uh, Saul says, tell me about your father, young man. And David replied, his name is Jesse. Uh, We live in Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was immediate bond between them for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact. That's the word for covenant. They made a covenant. He made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed this pact by taking off his robe, giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And hold on to that because we'll come back this. Now, this brings me to one of my first big points about David and Jonathan's friendship here. I want you to see it. They shared, they shared a covenant friendship. David and Jonathan enter into a covenant friendship. This epic biblical friendship was not made of the material that most of our relationships are. Ours are too casual. Our commitment is too flighty in this day and time. David and Jonathan weren't colleagues. They weren't bros. They weren't drinking buddies. They weren't BFFs or BFFAAs even. No, they entered into a covenant. Now, covenant is a word from another time. We don't have any covenants like this today in our culture. Marriage is as close as you'll get, but with no fault divorce, it's not even as strong as this covenant. This sort of covenant was a commitment before God, before God, that you would remain faithful to the relationship. This is what we see in these two. So that leads me to a question for you today. Like how committed are you to your friendships? Start with your marriage and work your way out. How committed? Are you willing to give up regular time for them? Are you willing to walk through grief with them? Not like just like a day of grief, like you go to the visitation, but a season of grief, night after night, month after month, just showing up for your friend, answering the calls, going before God in prayer. Would you make financial sacrifices for them? Would you stand up for them at the risk of losing your reputation? Would you not take a job in another city in order to stay with them? Would you love them? Even if they voted differently, would you stick with them? Even if they had a belief that you thought was wrong, untrue, or harmful, would you trust them with total honesty about your struggles and your sins? Would you accept correction and accountability from them? Would you forgive them if they hurt you? Would you give up your future for them? Your future. 
Because in effect, that's exactly what Jonathan did. Do you, do you see what Jonathan gives David to seal the covenant here? He hands him his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Remember, he's the heir apparent, but God has anointed David, and many scholars believe Jonathan is acknowledging in this moment that reality. When he gives this to David, it's his way of saying, even though everybody thinks I'm gonna become king, I believe you are to be the king. And then this passage says that he loved him as he loved himself. He gave David his future. Now again, this is not something that we do today. Covenants, especially a friendship covenant. But would it surprise you to know that friendship covenants have a significant place in the history of the church? In fact, they were recognized by the church at different points in church history. The ancient Eastern church actually had a liturgical rite called uh, brother making. Adelpho poiesis. Adelphos is the Greek word for brother. Poieo is the Greek word or Greek verb for uh, to make. So brother make, that's what they called it. Again, it was a liturgical rite in the church. Two friends would come together. They'd make a covenant with each other. They would share holy communion. They'd exchange crosses, and then this psalm would be read. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Later on in the Latin West, including England, they had similar rites as this. Now already some of you like feel uncomfortable with this, like friends making covenants, like, and we'll talk about why here in a second. But as I, I read on this, I studied on this, and I, I thought about this, something about this was appealing to me to know that I could have a friend that I could depend on in that way. Hmm. Uh, Bible scholar Wesley Hill actually makes the case uh, that we've lost any sort of like biblical vision for long-term self-sacrificing spiritual friendship today in our culture. We've lost the vision for like a, a David and, uh, and, and Jonathan friendship, uh, you know, a... Uh, Ruth and Naomi friendship, Jesus and the beloved disciple. Where is that? Where's the theology of that in our churches today? Now, Hill argues that there are four false beliefs that actually work against committed friendship. Uh, first, he calls them myths. First, it's called the myth of sex. He calls it the myth of sex. The myth of sex is that any intimate relationship at all is probably sexual. That's what we think. If you get too close to him, you get too close to her, beware, right? Because there's probably some romance behind it. Have you noticed, by the way, how romantic relationships are celebrated uh, in our culture, like almost to a fault when compared to friendships? Look at art, look at literature, look at movies. There are all sorts of movies about romance. There's all sorts of art about romance. There's an entire genre called the chick flick. There's an entire channel called the Hallmark Channel. And if you watch it long enough, you'll put your head through the drywall, right? Where are the movies? Where are the art about friendship? Where's the friendship channel? C.S. Lewis uh, said it like this. Uh, again, in his essay on friendship, he said, Tristan and Isildur, Anthony and Cleopatra, Romeo and Juliet. We had all sorts of counterparts for that in modern literature, all sorts of films, all sorts of movies that tell those stories of romance, but David and Jonathan, Pleiades and Orestes, Roland and Oliver, Amos and Emil, we don't have any. To which some of you are like, uh, Pleiades and Orestes, who's that? <laughs> Sounds like a medical condition. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. Who's that? We don't know because those stories aren't the ones being told. Now, Sigmund Freud's the one who ruined us here in my personal opinion um, because he argued beginning of the 20th uh, uh, century that the most significant desire we all have, like our life instinct, is our libido, erotic desire. So that's under everything we choose to do. That's the driving force, including our relationships. So any relationship that gets close underneath that has to be some sort of sexual urge. The sexual revolution has only made this worse, by the way. You know what's interesting is that 100 years later, basically everything Freud believed has been proven wrong by psychology. Ask any psychologist in the room. But he, but he still exercises this disproportionate amount of influence in our culture. Why? The sexual revolution. It sexualized everything. We think our deepest identity boils down to sex. It's interesting. Studies have shown um, that heterosexual people, especially men, young men, hesitate to get too close to other young men and change the way they talk about their relationships with their peers as they move through puberty. Reason why? According to the study is because they didn't want to be seen as romantic or gay. Now, see, the sexual revolution has made it impossible for us to imagine any sort of intimate relationship apart from romance. And that's sad. Because you know what? We need more stories like this one. We need more Frodo's and Sam's. What an epic friendship that is. Just gave you Sunday afternoon plans. Second myth myth of family. Myth of family. Hill says, uh, the myth of family says something like friends are never more, important as, uh, never more important than family or never as important as family. Now, this one isn't just peculiar to us. Every human civilization uh, kind of wrestles with this. Many people um, are raised to think that friendships always got to take a backseat to the spouse, to the kids, to the you know, siblings, whatever, right? But Jesus actually reimagines family for us, doesn't he? In Matthew 12, 48, he says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, is my sister, is my mother. Now, to be clear, I do not want to degrade the commitment we have to our biological families. That is very important. I just want you to take notice here how Jesus takes what we think of as the family, grabs it by both ends, stretches it out beyond what's comfortable for us, and then wraps people into it that we normally wouldn't. Next myth is the myth of work. This is the idea that my success at work defines my worth. Success at work defines my worth. And this is so threaded into our culture today. This is why none of us have time for friendships because they don't move the bottom line. Delighting and enjoying a friend doesn't get me to the next level of the bonus structure. It doesn't get me more power or dominance in the workspace. So why would I ever, in my achievement addiction and achievement orientation, why would I ever wanna have a friend? Last myth is the myth of freedom. And I won't go into this because I talk about this every week, but in our society, it is just a belief that the less accountable and anchored I am, the more free I am to be my truest self. If anybody tells me otherwise than what I feel, leave the relationship. Now, David and Jonathan show us a different way though, don't they? Back to their story. As it shakes out, we see how ironclad this covenant is. So if you know the story of 1 Samuel, it's mostly actually the story of David the fugitive. David has like a second of glory when he kills Goliath. And then things turn for him almost immediately. 
Saul loves him for about a minute, for about four verses, okay? Saul loves David. He puts David as the poster boy of his kingdom propaganda. I hired him. He makes him, the, he makes him in charge of all of the, uh, the, the commander of all of his armies, right? This teenage boy. But his, his love for David cools almost immediately into murderous envy when he realizes David's fame. 1 Samuel 18, 6, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. And they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Uh-oh. And the bliss strains from Saul's face. It all turns south for David from here. See, you know what Saul should have done? Saul should have grabbed David by the arm, pulled him up on his chariot with him, you know, kind of man side hugged him and said, yeah, that's right. This is David. This is my boy, right? I sent him out on the battlefield that day. He's your new commander. I killed a thousand. He killed 10,000. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the 11,000 club. That's what he should have said. But instead, Scripture tells us that this made Saul very angry. What's this, Saul said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Yep. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. A jealous eye on David. And the reason why I highlighted that for you is because that, my friends, a jealous eye, is the understatement of the millennia. A better way to describe what comes next would be this. From that time on, Saul tried to spear that fool, David, and remove him from the equation. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful. Over the course of the next three, two chapters, 18 and 19, there are nine episodes, nine, where Saul tries to assassinate David. Literally one verse after this, David is in like, I don't know, like the throne room of Saul playing the lyre for him because Saul's having one of his demon headaches, right? And it's, it, apparently the, it didn't work because Saul picks up a spear and throws it at David, right? Misses him. Now, if I'm David, I'm gonna give Saul a little moment for himself after this one, but David stays and spear number two, misses him. And at this point, David's like, I'm gonna give him some alone time, right? But this is how it plays out. Over the next two chapters, uh, three spears are thrown at David. There's multiple times where Saul sends officers to kill David. He sends officers to bring David back to him so he can kill David. In chapter 19, there's this moment where he tries to send Jonathan to kill David. And that's when he gets himself in trouble because Jonathan won't have it. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul, saying to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. It's like quit impugning David's character because he's not sinned against you. His deeds have been of good service to you. He took his life in his own hands when he attacked Goliath and the Lord brought about a victory for our nation. You saw it, we rejoiced. Why then you don't keep sinning against innocent David and trying to kill him without cause? Now Jonathan's putting his neck out there. Notice, bless you. He's putting his neck out there for him. Because even if you're a son, if you try to challenge a raging tyrant, your life's on the line. Now, uh, fast forward to chapter 20. After, uh, uh, after all this, 
David's feeling pretty discouraged, okay? Thought I killed Goliath. Thought I did a good thing here, right? So him and Jonathan have this meeting. Jonathan comes to encourage him. And, and David's like, look, man, I don't know what to do. Your dad keeps trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, does he? Really? I thought we handled that in 1 Samuel 19, chapter 19. And, and, and he's like, no, there's been several instances since then. And so they come up with this plan. Like, all right, we're gonna try to figure out whether or not you can come back into town. So this is what's gonna happen. There's gonna be a feast tomorrow, David says. And I want you to go to that feast. I'm not gonna come. And if Saul doesn't notice me, missing, then we'll know that he doesn't care about it, so I can come back. But if he does notice that I'm not there and he loses his mind, then you'll know and I'll know that he's after me. They even come up with this little signal where he'll shoot an arrow out into the wilderness to know whether or not it's safe for, for David. And you know, hands together, friends on three, break. And they go. Now the next, the first day at the feast, actually Saul notices that David's not there, but he thinks it's because, you know, David's doing some sort of purification in order so they can eat the meal with him. But the second day when he notices David's not there, he looks at Jonathan and says, where's your boy? And Jonathan, he actually lies for David. He's like, oh, he went to Bethlehem to do some sort of sacrifice or whatever. And when Jonathan says that, Saul explodes. He cusses Jonathan out, read it for yourself. This is his son, by the way. Then he commands that his son goes and gets David, brings him back so they can kill him together. And when David denies him, another spear gets thrown by Saul. Someone gives this dude a pool noodle or something before people get hurt. But guess who the spear gets thrown at this time? Jonathan, the son. So Jonathan knows, yeah, I think dad's against David. Let's shoot an arrow. And, you know, and, they, and him and David meet secretly again. And it's one of the last times they meet in the rest of their lives. They weep together. They reaffirm their covenant friendship. And then they go separate ways. I think the last time they actually meet is in 1 Samuel 23. It's later when David is at the low point of his life. David feels so unsafe in the land that you know where he goes? He goes to Gath. Guess where Gath is? Philistia, it's among the Philistines. And guess who came from Gath? Goliath. Think about that. David feels so unsafe in the nation where he killed Goliath for that he now has to go where Goliath is from in order to hide out. He's at rock bottom and Jonathan comes and ministers to him there. David continues to honor Jonathan after Jonathan dies. He buries his bones with honor. He adopts Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, as one of his own it's a friendship for the ages. I wish we had all day to tell the stories. Go read 1 Samuel 14 to 23 today. You'll get most of it there. Read 2 Samuel for extra credit. All right, now, this is a friendship for the ages. This friendship is intimate without having to be sexual. It rises above the enticements of power. It's even more loyal than family, especially when family goes off the rails. It's a friendship that forgoes freedom for the sake of companionship and the glory of God. And it challenges our modern sensibilities. It casts the vision for us of what could be. It awakens our imagination to the power of friendship and how critical it is to flourishing in life. I would suggest to you that perhaps David doesn't survive without a friend like Jonathan. Jonathan was placed there by God. And as I've studied this week, you know what? It's awakening me a desire. Says, I want that. I want a friendship like that. And I know a lot of you are lonely and you're thinking, you know, I want that too. Which proves to me that one of our best evangelistic tools today, church, is to come together and be a community of tightly knotted loyal friends with one another. 
And maybe in a divided world, we could show them that we have something that they need. Friendship's a beautiful thing. But while friendship is good, I'll close with this point. David and Jonathan's story shows us that friendship is not without pain. They suffered for one another. The Apostle Paul describes it like this. He says, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Well, it looks like your friend with a heavy burden on their back and you stepping in there beside them, shouldering that boulder and taking some of the weight and letting it slide on you. Practically, that looks like you going to a friend who's grieving. And you don't want to go over there every night. You don't want to have to hear them sobbing and hear the sobs and, and deal with their sin or deal with their struggle or deal with their suffering because it makes you sad, right? But you do it anyways. You go over there and you listen and you love and you show up and it drains you, but it fills them up. That's friendship. You're bearing some of the weight. And you know what? It gives them a vision of Jesus because in that moment, you've just become a substitutionary sacrifice for your friends and their sins and their struggles. Don't you see? Don't you see? You're sacrificing yourself for the sins or the struggles of another. Jesus says it like this, back to the passage, no one has greater love than this, to lay down their life for their friends. And I'll go ahead and tell you, if Jesus is the ultimate example of a friend, then we can't fail to remember that his own practice of friendship ended with him strung up on an instrument of torture, the cross, in order to love his friends Friendship wasn't a way out of self-sacrifice for Jesus, it was the way in. In Isaiah 53, the prophet uses all this burden-bearing language for Jesus. Surely he has borne, he bore it, stepped under the boulder for it. He bore our infirmities and he carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed. He stepped under the burden of sin and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, his shoulders, was the punishment that made us whole and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So as we come to this time of communion today, together, let us remember the friend we have in our capital B, burden bearer, Christ Jesus. Let us draw power from his spirit within us to go be friends who commit, who stay, who sacrifice, and who suffer. And let us be a community of friends who show the world where they can find friends just like him. Will you meditate on this for just a moment and then we'll partake together.